Hello, everyone. Welcome to Creation.Live. I'm your host, Trey. In each episode of this show, ICR scientists gather with subject matter experts, apologists, and other special guests to discuss pressing issues, whether that be ICR's current research, something new that's come to light in the scientific community, or something else entirely that ultimately impacts how science points to our Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope that these conversations are encouraging and enlightening in an increasingly chaotic world. I have with me today my co-host, Lauren, and I have with me today the special privilege to introduce uh, Dr. Mark Stengler, we'll call him Mark Sr., and then Mark Stengler, we'll call him Mark Jr. So thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. We're excited to have you all on today. Uh, today we're going to talk about... Uh, just the idea that there's this misconception that evolution is a provable, observable fact, uh, but in actuality, the scientific literature itself uh, suggests otherwise. There's there's things in there that don't actually they they fly in the face of evolution. Uh, so, I would like to ask you um, why do the scientific papers why do they kind of show a different story than um, than what the textbooks say or what uh, media says? Yeah, thank you for that question. Well, I think when you look at the scientific papers and you look at textbooks and so forth on the topic, what you're going to find is a different story than what people are told. Basically because the papers have to spell out and discuss the objective evidence. And when you look at the objective evidence, you don't see this type of you know, molecules to man story that people have been told. You don't see that at all. And so within those papers, because often they are written by people with an evolutionary bias, you'll see, you know, some interesting discussions and, and thoughts. But when you look at the objective evidence, you don't see evolution in terms of, like, again, the molecules to man type of evolution. And, of course, when I talk to people, I always want to know what you mean by evolution. Um, evolution, if you mean there's adaptation within kinds of organisms, Within certain parameters, fine. That's, I agree with that 100%. Some people use the term microevolution. Uh, if you're talking about a fundamental change of one organism transitioning into a fundamentally different type of organism, I, I refer to that more as science fiction. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we have some differences there. And you have uh, mentioned to me before that you have three studies in particular that you think everyone should know that kind of point towards this fact that, hey, evolution's not all it's cracked up to be, or at least all that it's displayed as. So uh, you wanna get us started in that in that regard? Well, sure, I mean, you, there's two studies especially I talked to a lot of people about, uh, people in the medical field, which I'm in, uh, some of my biology you know, friends, people who study evolution. There's two studies I always want to bring up because what we want to do is look at the objective evidence again. I don't want, you know, emotional stories, fables, um, theoretical constructs. I want what the objective evidence shows. And so the first study is one that was published in 2018. And it was the largest DNA study ever done, essentially on evolution. And it was published in the Journal of Human Evolution, 2018, by Stokel and Thaler. And in that study, it's very interesting. They took 100,000 different species, as they defined it. And this included humans. And what they did is they took a part of the DNA in mitochondria. Not to get too complex, but 
basically in humans and animals, you have two different types of DNA. You have DNA in your cells and you have DNA in the mitochondria, the organelles in your cells which produce energy. In any event, they took the same, what they call barcode or section of mitochondria DNA in all 100,000 species and in humans, and they compared them. And what they expected to find was you would see a genetic relationship amongst the different species. And so this is the largest genetic study ever done, so it should have you know, a lot of weight. And the authors were interviewed in a publication called phys.org, which anyone can see online for free. And the authors, who are obviously revolutionists, uh, came out were very honest. They said they were very surprised. Essentially, they were shocked by the findings. In other words, they had to go with what the objective findings found, at least in terms of if you're being honest. And what they found was there was no intergenetic relationship among species, as one would expect with a Darwinian model. Just like you don't see the, you know, the billions of transitional fossils you should see in the fossil record, you don't see it in the DNA, number one. Number two, with DNA, you can do analysis of mutations and you can get a timeline of how old an organism is. The other thing that shocked them was essentially they concluded that all animal and human life arose around the same time. So again, if you're a Darwinist, it doesn't and make you, any sense. Yeah. You come to these kind yeah. of conclusions. So I point that study out because, look, when you're in a court of law, if I put some bones up on the table as evidence, it could have some weight depending on you know, what you can describe about it. But there's a lot you don't know. You don't know who it came from. Most you know, fossils are incomplete. But if I take the DNA from those bones, now you can have an airtight case. And as we all know, DNA, you know, can set you free or can be fi find you guilty. Mm -hmm. So here we have the largest genetic study ever done. And has this been all over the news? No, I don't think it has been. But published in a major mainstream journal, Journal of Human Evolution, which has to do with evolution, mm -hmm. right? And so it shows the exact opposite. What does it show? It shows the biblical model. It's exactly what we read in Genesis. Mm -hmm. Essentially, in six days, we have all of life formed, each kind reproduces its own kind. So we find the biblical model in the largest genetic study ever done. Thank you very much. Why <laughs> do you think good. we're not seeing that in the mainstream news? Because I didn't even hear about that, honestly. When did that come out? And that was Yeah, that was 2018. Okay, wow. so it was pretty recently. Pretty Why recent. do you think we didn't see that in the mainstream news? Why is that not being published? published? Well, when scientists come out with papers and different publications come out, you know, it's like anything else. We do use the media in different fields, including in medicine, again, which I'm in, to, you know, kind of promote what you want to promote, mm -hmm. right? So you're not going to have your publicity department promote something you're not necessarily want to get out, which you're going to make your colleagues upset about. And so, and it's, it's the type of thing also our major medical, our, our major institutions, educational institutions, I mean, let's face it, they have a faculty which has a bias towards Darwin evolution. It's almost like a religion to them. Yeah. And so they wouldn't be too happy about these things. But again, it's published in a mainstream secular journal. Um, you can't say there's some you know, Christian bias to it. And these are the, conclusion they, the conclusions they came to, to the point where, like they said, they were surprised and shocked by the results, but this is what they are. Now, to this point, I haven't seen anyone refute the findings. But it's just, it's still sitting out there for anyone anyone to see, but they're not going to make a big deal about it. Right, right. right. Okay, that makes sense. So I'm going to take a look at this uh, from more of a uh, Christian perspective. You said it fits the biblical model. How can we use uh, this particular study to 
advance the faith, advance the idea of, you know, the biblical model of creation? Uh, what can we do with that? Well, I think when Mark and I are, are talking to people and we meet people, we do a lot of evangelism. So we meet people from all different walks of life. When we're talking to people, we just, you know, we get to know them, you know, just for a minute or two and find out what kind of work they do or if they're in school, what they're studying. And we find out if they have, you know, a background in, say, chemistry or the hard sciences or physics or especially biology. Engineering is a very good kind of leap to talk about this type of thing. And we start talking. Quite often, the topic of evolution will come up, you know, you know, we're Christians and what we're talking to them about. And um, we just start asking them questions, you know, what they believe and why they believe it. And quite often, evolution does come up. And so what I like to point out to them are key studies like this showing the objective evidence is in our favor. It's not in the favor of Darwinian evolution. Matter of fact, when you start looking at everything in totality, when you start looking at uh, biological complexity, biological science, um, all the hard sciences, combine that with archaeology, predictive prophecy in the Bible, the manuscript evidence, the eyewitness accounts, wow, I mean, the reality is, what I try to point out to people nicely, the evidence is a landslide in the favor of our belief system. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the evidence for your belief system? Because often evolution does come up, and I think Mark would agree. What's been your experience with that? I would agree that it's, it's shocking how often that evolution can be a, a barrier. Uh, Darwinian evolution can be a barrier, especially to, to college students um, who are studying the sciences because they're bombarded with not just the the, the science or the so-called science of Darwinian evolution, but there's also a philosophy behind it. There's a, there's a worldview mm -hmm. that's anti-God. So it's not just that they're getting uh, this Darwin, Darwinism shoved down their mind, but also that this, this philosophy that says that we don't need God, um, God has nothing to do with our lives. Uh, and so if you're trained in that, you go to four years of college or high school or however many years, and you're told this, then obviously uh, when it comes to faith, to Christ, the Christian faith, uh, you might have this idea that faith is opposed to reason, that if I want to succeed in my, my field of science or whatever I'm studying, or I just simply want to be a rational person, I don't want to check my brains out the door, well, I can't be a Christian mm -hmm. because that's opposed to, to reason and using your mind. But I think, like you like you showed with, with this study and other examples, that this is false, this dichotomy between faith and reason that uh, if you want to be a Christian, uh, you can't use your mind, which we know that we're commanded to love God with all of our mind. And so I think it's, it's a helpful stepping stone to show unbelievers that uh, you can be a Christian, you can still do science well, you can be a scientist, you can be a doctor, you can just simply enjoy uh, the sciences that God's created uh, and still be a follower of Jesus, that they're not opposed to each other. Um, but just like you know, we saw today at the, the museum all these great scientists who've been followers of Jesus uh, just shows, history just simply shows that it's not true. You can follow Jesus, uh, be a, a faithful Christian, and also excel uh, in, in the sciences or whatever field you're in. Absolutely. So, Mark Jr., I'm curious because if I'm not mistaken, you're still completing your education right now. Um, is that is that the case? Are you still? Okay. Yeah. So within those educational realms, what are some personal ways that you've actually seen this acted out in real life where maybe a professor, you don't have to name names, but just maybe a professor or a fellow student um, just has this perspective and how I'm sure you've been confronted with things that have challenged you mentally and intellectually because the other side evolution is very loud. 
Um, so what are some things that have helped you, whether in interacting with people who don't believe this or even just in your own mind as you hear some of these evolutionary lies even taught from very intelligent people? What are some things that have helped you in that? You can also name names. We're not afraid <laughs> to put people on blast. Yeah. For sure. I, I think my journey has been a little different. So I've gone to, to Christian school for undergrad, um, grad, and then now post-grad. Um, this doesn't totally answer your question, but when I went to grad school, I went to a more liberal Christian school where it's interesting to see some of the um, the philosophy, I guess you could see in, in, in secular schools that has to do with more liberal type of thinking. And uh, I don't know if my grad school would have supported Darwinian evolution or not. There probably would have been some yes, some no. Uh, so you, you see that, and to be honest, it, it does affect other areas um, of the Christian faith. So there is a trickle-down effect. It's not just, oh, if I believe that uh, Darwinian evolution might be true, uh, it doesn't affect any other part of my Christian faith. Well, then you start getting into things like, well, maybe other parts of the Bible aren't true, or now we reinterpret other you know, ways we read Scripture. So uh, it, is, it is important you know, to, to be certain of what, of what we believe regarding the accuracy of the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible. Uh, so that's kind of from a Christian perspective I've seen. Uh, speaking just to people who have gone through a different experience than I have, have had just simply secular education, um, what I've noticed, especially as I see my dad talk to them, is that they simply haven't been challenged uh, from the opposing view before. Or they think there isn't one at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So it just it's just a stunning to think that you're at a, a university and supposed to be a an institution of free thought where people exchange ideas and you know you're welcome to make mistakes and, and learn and grow, but you're only exposed to one viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And that's not really doesn't help you grow as as a thinker, as a person. We're only exposed to one viewpoint. So um, I think that when we we talk to unbelievers or people who've just been brought up in the system. And again, they're not all going to be PhD molecular biologists who know the ins and outs of every evolutionary system. Most people aren't like that, honestly. They know the basic things um, like my dad described, right? The Darwin's finches and, and all these things like this, the, the difference between micro and macro evolution. Uh, they just haven't thought through these issues before. So I think uh, as, as Christians, we can just respectfully ask them questions to help them to start to think through these issues um, because they're not going to be challenged at their, their secular university. That's great. And if I could add, when we ask the questions, what we find is the vast, vast majority don't even have basic answers. Mm. You know, it's more of an emotional belief system. And we, you know, myself, Mark, there's other people who are involved in evangelism. We've talked to hundreds, thousands of people, range from people from the NIH, PhD biologists, chemists, medical doctors, um, engineers, etc. And basically, we're flexible in how we talk to people, you know, people that are friendly and want to have an open discussion and look at the evidence. You know, we kind of approach it one way. People are a little bit more like proud and stuff like that. To be honest with them, we really go in and use polemics and we go right into the origin of life. And how can their worldview explain the origin of life with the complexity, the diversity, how it could get started? And what you'll find in about two minutes is they don't have a starting point. And so what I tell them is, look, you don't have a starting point. There's no use talking about other evolutionary theories because mm -hmm. you can't even get started. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to show them, and in contrast with our worldview, which... Really, I don't get too technical, but I say fulfills 
the law of causality. Fancy way of saying cause and effect. So when you talk to people who believe in Darwin evolution, they talk about the theoretical effects, but they cannot explain the causation behind it, the intelligence behind it. You know, whether we're talking about DNA, where we're talking about, you know, the type of chemistry that would need to be involved in forming life. Um, they really just don't have a foundation for it. And so what we're able to show them is our belief system is not only very reasonable, but it's what the objective evidence shows. And that their, their worldview, which may be surprising to them, but looking at it honestly, it has no foundation. And it's not scientific at all. Matter of fact, it ends up being an emotional. It's really just an emotional type of uh, worldview or decision. So anyways, that's kind of the approach we take. Now, sometimes, like I said, we're a little more aggressive with the, you know, more well-educated people, a little more proud and stuff, but Mark has kind of seen it all. <laughs> <laughs> I think, too, that there's a, there's a sense in which we, through just wisdom and practice and also mm-hmm. just God's, uh, God impressing upon you what to say to someone, is this person really sincere in that, mm. that there's, this is really a stumbling block? Because there's definitely people... You know, we've talked to, I've seen my dad talk to many people who just, like I said earlier, they've never heard the opposing mm-hmm. view or they haven't heard it correctly. They've heard what Christians believe about science from the secular viewpoint, which is inaccurate. So they've heard an <laughs> inaccurate view of what Christians believe. And so then they hear what Christians really believe and it's a bit of a shock. So is it Wait, that- you guys believe in science? Right, exactly. <laughs> those type of things. Yeah, yeah. So is, you know, is someone, this is actually a stumbling block uh, do we need to use apologetics? Do we need to break out these studies? Do we need to go in depth with this mm-hmm. person because they're really struggling with this? Or is it, I like this system because it just confirms what I want to be true. Yeah. You know, I don't want there to be a God. And this is a system which sa- which can work, I guess, uh, so that there is no God and life could get here. And no matter how much evidence you throw at me, mm-hmm. uh, I'm still going to reject it because I want it to be true. It's the emotional uh, side of things. As long as you don't get too deep into it. Then right. you well, you know, it it's interesting. Work. You yeah. never know. Like the other weekend um, at our outreach, I was talking to a man who was just completing his MD, PhD combined program. Wow. And um, he, I think he said originally, he, you know, was kind of brought up Christian at a young age and then kind of fell away from it. And then, you know, was finishing his MD, PhD program. So I started going through with him DNA, biological complexity, some of the studies that were, I did cover uh, three of the studies the ones we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating. After about 30 minutes, he had a quite a rapid change in his mind. And then myself and another team member actually, you know, went through biblical passages, the gospel with them. And it was a very, very positive, you know, um, conversation. And so, um, but you wouldn't have maybe thought that in the first five minutes. Right. Mm-hmm. It's quite resistance in the first five minutes. So you never know. Well, right. that's really good to hear too, because... Like you said, sometimes there's a huge difference between someone that really does want to have a conversation and just isn't familiar with it versus someone who just wants to pick a fight. Yeah. And frankly, we get we get a lot of those um, just kind of looking, well, what about this and what about that? And we actually have articles about that on our website, but it's clear from the way they're asking the questions that they're just trying to poke holes in the worldview. And it's really interesting to me that they accuse us of being emotional when, mm-hmm. like you said, theirs is a very emotionally held worldview and there's mm-hmm. not evidence to back that up. It's all emotional because they don't like the implications of having a creator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Speaking of 
those studies. Let's uh, pull it back a little bit. Uh, did you have anything else to say about the mitochondria study? I think that's you know mainly okay. mainly it. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's go into that second study. I have a uh, something with E. coli, which I know has been used as a uh, so like a hallmark of evolution for mm -hmm. a while. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Well, yeah. So the other study often I bring up my conversations with people is the first one we talked about, you know, the largest DNA study. The second one I talk to people about and I point out to them, it's the longest study on evolution. And it's a study done by Professor Richard Lenski. And essentially we did, starting about 35 years ago, he started with 12 flasks of um, E. coli bacteria. And then you're basically putting a substrate in, feeding them. They reproduce about six to seven generations uh, a day. Oh, wow. So it's kind of a way you, you try. He's trying to look at like evolution and like real life time. So he's been doing this for years, looking to see what changes. And he at some point started tracking, you know, changes in some of the DNA and mutations and things like that, as they refer to them, and some of the changes in the fitness and all that. But basically, what it comes down to is this: we're at about seventy-five thousand generations, you know, that's bacteria. Now remember, that's bacteria. That's E. coli. Yeah. And in human years, you know, it's like a few million mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. So when I point this out to people, the longest study done um, on evolution, still ongoing. Matter of fact, now Professor Lenski is passing it on to another fellow uh, at, a, at another university and uh, to keep it going. But what have we found? What have we found? Well, what we have found again is microevolution. No macroevolution. In other words... The outcome is we still have E. coli bacteria. We don't even have a different type of bacteria. We don't have Staphylococcus. Uh, we don't have Streptococci. We don't have viruses. We don't have fungi. We don't have plants. We don't have, I mean, oh, we have the same thing we started out after 75,000 generations. Wow. We have E. coli bacteria. Now, it's interesting when you read some of the uh, papers and stuff Lenski's been involved with, you know, he likes to refer to it as evolution. It's called the long-term evolution experiment, okay? Again, how do you define evolution? So he talks about, uh, at one point, what happened was E. coli bacteria in the presence of oxygen can't use citrate as an energy substance. Um, in these flasks, they give them glucose, you know, a type of sugar, right, for energy. And, but there was a little bit of citrate in the medium they use as a preserve and all that, and so one line of the E. coli bacteria started using citrate as an energy source, you know, not in the presence of oxygen. And Lenski kind of jumped the gun and said, wow, look, we have, here we have evolution, in, you know, in action here. Here's a sign of evolution, some major changes happening. It sounds like adaptation it to does. me. <laughs> Thank you. It sounds like continuous environmental tracking. Right. Yes, yeah. continuous environmental tracking. God has made all organisms to have the ability to uh, utilize continuous environmental tracking tracking. Absolutely. What does that really mean? It means we have preloaded in our genetic information the ability to adapt to our environment. But here's the key, and this is the, this is the key that the Darwinists fail to recognize or admit. The ability to adapt to your environment is within certain parameters. By the way, I, I, I borrowed that term from Dr. Galuza. I know he'll be okay with that. Okay? Right. <laughs> but within, within certain parameters, right? And so that's what we see. Now, there's other papers that have been published, and they found that um, they had shown that E. coli bacteria, you know, can uh, use citrate as an energy source. Uh, so it wasn't unique to this experiment. Um, 
But it's interesting. When you look at Lenski's papers, which I've done, guess what kind of terminology I see in there? I see the word adaptation. Mm. I also see he admits that uh, like an E. coli line, E. coli bacteria that were using the citrate and they followed them, they actually had a pretty high rate of, um, of death mm. and poor fitness, ability to reproduce and all that. So that sounds like not evolution. That would be like de-evolution <laughs> yeah. in a sense. So anyways, but the big picture when you're talking to people is, look, if you want, you say you're into science. Some people are and some people just say it. They're really not, right? But if you're really into science, again, let's look at the longest experiment on evolution. We start with E. coli bacteria and we have E. coli. E. coli. So again, if you like objective evidence, if you like the scientific method, then this is what we see. And again, it matches up to the biblical account, the biblical model. So again, it just happens to be the evidence is all in our favor. I would agree. <laughs> uh, so we do have a, a, a third study that you mentioned to me, uh, and I have here like, neo-Darwinism must mutate to survive, which that in and of itself sounds evolutionary. Uh, but uh, let's hear what you have to say about that. What is that study and, uh, and why is that important? Well, it really was a paper, and in the paper, they're actually poking fun at Darwin evolution. Uh, Neo-Darwinism must mutate to survive. And what they're basically pointing out that, oh, I should mention the journal, it was in the Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. So, you know, very mainstream, yeah. mm -hmm. so to speak. Doesn't mean make it good, but shows you can't say it's biased from a certain viewpoint. Right. Right? Right. This was in April 2022, and so what the authors basically had said is like, looking at Darwin evolution, can you really explain you know, the diversity of life, such as survival of the fittest and, quote, natural selection. And can you really explain what we're seeing in our world? And when they analyzed it from many different levels, basically their answer was, no, it really can't. And they came up with models, and they said it's so implausible that macroevolution, most specifically, was so implausible. You know, again, what's macroevolution? One type of creature organism fundamentally transitioning to another fundamentally different type of creature. Mm -hmm. The example I give when I'm, you know, discussing, debating would be from from dinosaurs to birds. That's quite a major change, right? And that one be, that they push so heavily. Yeah, mm -hmm. that would be quote supposed macroevolution. Now, of course, we all know there's no fossil evidence of it. There's no known mechanism how you could get the novel or new genetic information for the body uh, changes to occur. But regardless, they say, well, it's so implausible, it's around something like 10 to the 50th power. So one, you know, one chance in 10 to the 50th power. Now remember, there's about 10 to the 60th particles that make up the whole universe. <laughs> so basically, <laughs> it's, it's, it's essentially impossible. It's, impossible. it's not going to work. So it's interesting you see that in the mainstream journal like that. And we're starting to see it a little bit more coming out, some of these journals, even though it's hard to get published in them like that. And the authors also made a very good point. They said... Doubting is good in science. Now, you notice with the Darwin evolutionists, they, they get very upset when you doubt their model. Mm -hmm. You challenge them based on the science and the objective defensive. evidence. They yes. get very defensive. But, you know, doubting's always been good in science. You know, whether you're a Christian, whether you're you know, an evolutionist, doubting is a good thing in, in the sense that you're always looking to make sure you're confirming what the truth is. Now, we have objective ways to do it in Christianity, but in terms of Darwinists, I mean, they have to use what's in the published literature. Yeah. And unfortunately, it works against their model. So they basically said two things, these authors. Number one, Darwin evolution fails to account for, and they must account for, non-life to life. And this really is like dynamite to the evolutionist. Mm -hmm. There is no model, there's no known mechanisms 
how you can go from non-life to life, which you'd call abiogenesis. Matter of fact, if you look at modern dictionaries, like the McGraw-Hill Dictionary of Scientific and Technical Terms, which a new edition, by the way, is $1,000. Gotta say, make money somehow. Yeah, <laughs> they say right in there that abiogenesis from non-life to life is an obsolete concept. If you look at the Oxford Dictionary of Science, they say it's a discredited concept. Wow. So this is, you know, this is what the way it is. Darwin evolution, you can't get started. You can talk about these other theoretical things, but remember, the whole thing can't even get started. And Darwin, on origin of the species, did he actually ever address the actual origin? No. No, not at all. He started with, you know, billions of steps that would have had to have been required to even get to the point what he's talking about, beetles and finches and all that, right? Number two, they say that blossoming of life forms is so extreme that it appears to be outrageous and so that it stretches logic to explain the millions of extremely diverse species seen currently and in the fossil record. Mm. So this is what they're pointing out. So this is what the science shows. This is what the objective evidence shows. And it all goes back to supporting, whether one wants to admit it or not, the biblical record as we read in Genesis, and that there had to be a mind behind it, and we know who that mind is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, we have much evidence to uh, give the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's not about objective evidence. You know, we're humans. You know, people have emotions and biases. biases and we have a spirit and what do you think mark anything you want to add to that Uh, yeah i guess just to pick up what what you're saying with the god's made us with different parts you could say we have a mind we have a physical part of our body we have the spiritual aspect of ourselves Uh, we have the emotions in our heart and um, our mind and so this is one way to appeal to to the mind which is important we don't want to uh, discredit that Uh, and i think that god's word answers um, the questions we have, uh, and you know, even as believers, we're continually learning and, and growing, and in our understanding of God and His world and His ways, and um, that's part of our, our sanctification. Um, but in terms of presenting uh, the gospel message with science, with the, the apologetics, yes, we're appealing to the mind, um, and it can seem abstract if we keep it there. And not that it's bad that we present these things is important. Uh, but if we just keep it as, well, now there's a creator uh, who made me. Darwinian evolution is false. Okay, you've convinced me intellectually, but now what? Now, where does that leave me? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where we can present the gospel. So we don't just leave someone with, okay, you're wrong. You know, you've, whatever you've been brought up to believe is, is false. But here's the solution, you know, to the problem. We can explain the gospel message that uh, now you can know this creator. This creator loves you and has revealed himself in Jesus. So... Well, it's kind of the flip side of what you were saying earlier, how if you can mistrust one part of Scripture, what other part can you mistrust? It's kind of the flip side of that. When you show that you really, truly can believe what Scripture says about these things, then it increases our faith and improves our faith in the rest of what God says. And, I mean, I've said it again and again. We don't need to prove Scripture. It can stand on its own. But it will stand up to scrutiny. Every time we examine something that it says with a proper understanding— it stands up to that, and the evidence continues to demonstrate that and will continue to demonstrate that over and over again, including in the studies that you've cited today. Yeah, yeah no, we would agree. And um, like I said, this is just one part of our outreach, you know, and there's certain people we don't even get into this in a whole lot of detail because they're not interested or it's not really, you know, something that's of interest. And so if people want to talk about the gospel right at the beginning, that's even better. 
You know, it's just just a stepping stone. That's the most powerful part, right? That's yeah. the goal. You know, that's the goal. And some people, we go over this type of information. It seems reasonable to them. They want to consider it, and maybe put like a, you know, a little pebble in their shoe. So they gotta when they start thinking about their worldview, thinking, and then, and then the Holy Spirit will use other people to come into their life and you know, uh, counsel them and review things and preach the gospel to them. Other people, you know, we go all the way, you know, through the whole gospel, and they're very receptive. So. There's just, you know, it's just, I think in Christianity, uh, I think it has been a weakness. I mean, if you look at uh, the history of Christianity, even in America, and I'm not here to, you know, cut down uh, clergymen and pastors and elders and all that, but if you look at the history of Christianity, uh, the, the elders and the clergy and the pastors used to be very highly educated in many different facets of life. Mm. And they would, the people would come to them from the towns and stuff and, and to be counseled in many different matters. And then what happened over time was uh, there was a, a decision in some ways to kind of just separate, you know, science and evidence and all that, apart from the spiritual and emotional type of things. And so then we got into this place where even in our school systems, we did the same thing. We gave them away, you know, to secularists who, you know, in many ways are anti-God. And that's kind of the position we're in. But when you look at it, no matter what angle you look at it from, all the evidence is in support of the Christian worldview. And so that's why we need to be confident in what we believe and why we believe it. It takes some effort and work, you know, to look into these things, research it and study it. And I know like ICR is very supportive of the local churches. It's one of the parts of the mission statement, mm -hmm. right? And so we just, you know, it's important for the for the elders, to the pastors out there, the clergymen, they've got to really get on board. They're really missing the boat because you look at studies and how college students, for example, why they leave the faith. Usually there's, the studies show two main things. They can't answer biblical questions, and they cannot comport their worldview with Darwin evolution. And so let's just face the facts. Now, what I have found is these things are very easy to address, but it takes some time and effort. And um, yeah, the Bible is always amazing to me. I would never bet against the Bible. I would never bet against it. When you have something like that which has over 300 prophecies for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, fulfilled in detail, very, very specific, so easily could be disproven and can't be. You're, you're starting with probabilities which get into be absurdity. There is no other type of book out there, no other type of revelation even comes remotely close to even something like that. Then you combine with the archaeology, like I said, the eyewitness accounts, um, and the life-changing internal life-changing power that it has here in the gospel. What am I missing, Mark? He's the theologian. No, you covered, covered you think you covered most of it. Um, I just want to touch on something you said about uh, the, the whole idea of separating the, the, the Christian faith and um, uh, other life matters. Um, I think that you're right. Like Typically, this hasn't been part of like church history. Like No one's really... If you just look at the first few centuries, no one, as far as I know, no one's had this idea that this Christian life is separated from day-to-day -day life as well as um, intellectual matters. I mean, I just think of, you know, just to throw a name out there, someone like Augustine, mm -hmm. one of the greatest theologians in the church was an intellectual. He was a philosopher. And, and of, again, all the, the scientists, there's so many that were Christians and Christianity is fundamental to, fundamental to their faith. I think that part of the reason 
there's been this disconnect is because in America, um, with some of the, the founding fathers were more deist in their understanding of, of God. So God was more of a distant creator. He created things, but then he just, he doesn't, he's not involved in the world. So God started the whole process, but now he's not, um, you're not involved in our lives anymore. But some of the, the pastors you were talking about, like the early Puritans, they didn't have that idea at all. They were very, you know, they strongly believed that God was involved in every aspect of our life, that God's word covers um, all of, you know, all of creation, the sciences, math, philosophy, business, homemaking, whatever. Applications uh, for Applications, yeah, yeah applications mm-hmm. for, for every area of life. So uh, I just wanted to say it just so just some context, I guess, understanding, you know, how do we get here? The original Christians weren't like that, right. but it was an unbiblical influence that said, well, God's not really involved in uh, mm. our daily life of, of he's only involved in these spiritual abstract things, um, but that's not how it originally was at all. It, it's interesting because you mentioned deism where, you know, deism kind of, instead of God and the person being close, now God's further away. And all Darwinism is, is just like, furthering that distance, mm-hmm. you know, and then furthering it so much that now God is no longer even a part of the picture. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's an interesting uh, uh, connection there, mm-hmm. yeah. I think something else that's interesting um, is a lot of pastors today, we're talking about how pastors used to be well-educated in a lot of different areas. I think a lot of pastors today have started doubting the relevancy of scripture and how it does pertain to our lives today. And the Bible might not be recent, but it is imminently relevant yesterday, today, and forever. And just to realize that everything that the Bible addresses matters and it's accurate. I remember I might have told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it was very foundational for me. Um, when I was in college, I went to a great Christian college, but we were studying philosophy at one point. And just realizing there were a lot of intelligent people, very intelligent people throughout history and today that don't believe in scripture, that believe something very different from what I believe. So I actually went to my dad. My dad is a pastor, Mm. um, but he has studied a lot of different things. And he was pre-law for most of his college. He now has his doctorate in divinity. And so he's just pretty, pretty broad education there. And so I just went to him and I asked him, so why Christianity? Why not any of these other worldviews that everyone seems just as confident, like in their view as I am in mine? And he didn't get upset or anything. He didn't tell me to stop thinking about it or anything Hmm. like that. He just said, honey, look at the evidence. Look at how scripture explains reality the way we see it. No other worldview on the planet. And he encouraged me. He's like, look at this one. Look at this one. No other worldview on the planet, including Darwinian evolution, can explain the way we see reality today. And that was so encouraging for me because I did. I I looked through it and, well, how does how does this other worldview account for evil in the world? How does this other worldview account for the presence of morality across cultures or the complete lack of transitional forms, not just in humanity, but across all species and just all these different things. And it was so encouraging to me. And I just think that's part of why ICR is so urgent in our outreach to churches. Because once the pastors remember Mm -hmm. that the scripture is relevant and can be trusted, then they start instilling that in their congregations and you have a whole new generation of people that can truly believe what scripture says in all that it states. Absolutely. And I think think that as we, the further along we go, as more and more of these studies come out, I think we're going to see more and more inklings of, you know what? this doesn't fit with Darwinian evolution. 
this this just doesn't this doesn't match because we know the deeper we go the the more scientific we are because i think about you know like back in the day people thought cells were just blobs right they're like what is this and now we're like oh these are incredible machines and so like the deeper we go the more we learn the more we're going to just uncover that this is impossible for any of this to happen by chance. Well, Trey, I think the science, the objective evidence is already there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, I have, I have no problem telling people Darwin evolution, it's dead. It's like anything else. It takes people being honest about the evidence. Mm-hmm. It'll take to 10 to 20 years for the textbooks to be changed. It's dead. There's, it, it cannot be resurrected. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's gone. It's dead. If people want to be dishonest about it, they can. Uh, it's going to take time for people to, to realize it, but it's dead. Objectively, scientifically, it's dead. You know, it started dead and it's still dead today. But in terms of where we're at in the science right. and the objective evidence, it's it's dead. And it's just going to keep getting more dead. Yeah. <laughs> Beating that dead horse, yes. that dead finch. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, any further thoughts from y'all? Um, I think maybe just uh, maybe again what you're saying uh, a balance. I mean, here I am talking about objective scientific evidence and, and you know and how it does you know how it is uh, stated in the Bible in Genesis. You know, each kind reproduces its own kind, which is all we've ever observed. Um, but we've talked about objective evidence, you know, scientific in the mind. But it's always a balance. I think what you're saying, what Mark's saying, we don't want to discount. Don't I don't want people to think, hey, we just discount, you know, the spiritual aspect mm-hmm. of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of salvation. So don't get me wrong, we're not discounting those things. What a lot of these discussions we have with people really, they're just icebreakers. First of all, people want to make they want to see maybe you're, you know, just rational, you know, maybe have some intelligence, you know what you're talking about. A lot of people it makes them more open to discussing the gospel, uh, but I think objective evidence is important. ICR obviously is very much dedicated to providing that objective evidence, and our discussions. And Mark's had more experience because he's been around the world. You know, he's doing his studies in world religions. But um, when you talk to people, I mean, and their belief systems, I mean, it's, they're basically little to no evidence at all. What would you say about that, Mark? Just maybe in closing, in terms like. Your, all the other cultures, you know, that you talk to in their belief systems. Sometimes it's quite amazing as to how they've arisen at their beliefs. Right. Yes, I I agree with you that uh, that we don't want to discount the other aspects of a, a person's being. Um, we also don't want to go to the other extreme of saying, well, the mind the mind is not important. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. the, the two extremes, right, of, mm. of saying, well, the mind's not important um, and we just want an emotional type of response. Uh, or just say, well, it's all just rational, just information. Um, if we, as long as the person understands something intellectually, then it's going to, you know, change their life. So it's it's both. Obviously, you know, the gospel is it's information. It's um, and it's about a person. So it's both, you know, objective information about a real person, um, but that person is, you know, personable with us. So God right. is personal with us. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a mix of us. But I think that you know, you talk in terms of uh, world religions or. The religion of Darwinism, I guess, in, mm-hmm. in this case, um, it, a lot of it does come to the 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 not being challenged before mm-hmm. of just simply or someone not um, uh, asking the questions. Well, I think questions are very powerful. You know, like you, like you were, you were talking about earlier, uh, questions are very powerful to get someone to to think for themselves, uh, especially if they've been told. 
by someone they trust for a long time to think a certain way. Um, my professor said, this is true. He has PhD next to his name. Therefore, I just accept whatever he says. Or it's just ingrained in the culture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, my, my parents did this and everyone else around me does this. They're nice people, so it must be true. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, asking questions very, are, are very powerful ways to, to help people to come uh, to an understanding and start to think for themselves. And, and we know that, you know, we're not alone. It's not just us. Uh, it's all on us. It's God is working through us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, God uses the questions. God uses the evidence to point people to his son. And only he can change people's hearts ultimately. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. That's actually, that's an interesting point. Uh, you, you were saying like, oh, my parents say this. I think that Christianity falls victim to that too, mm -hmm. especially in America where it is more culturally acceptable or even expected in, you know, the Bible belt that, hey, you're supposed to be a Christian, right? Uh, or at least it's a social thing to be a Christian and it's like, Oh, these kids grow up and they're like, Oh, my parents were Christian. So yeah, I'm a Christian. And then they go off to college and then they are exposed to an alternate way of thinking or they are for the first time. They're like, Oh, the world is a little bit bigger than what I thought. Uh, and so they have no real foundation for that Christianity. I mean, of course that's, not just the parents' fault or the church's fault. There, there's a lot that goes into that. But I do think that a lot of people go off to college and they're like, wow, there's more out there and I'm not prepared. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to give a defense. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'll just switch. And yeah. trade, to be honest, that's half of what we do. Our conversations are with uh, people claiming to be Christians mm -hmm. or have that type of background. Mm -hmm. uh, they either don't have answers to questions on evolution or the Bible. You know, we take that just as serious, provide answers for that. And again, that, you know, that's what ICR is doing. It's providing, you know, the, the information that churches can use to get that information out, uh, you know, to the flock, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But half of the conversations we have, I'd say, are with Christians or so-called Christians. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's crazy. Mm. Well, uh, thank you all so much for being here today. We really appreciate your time on this podcast. And, uh, for those of you who are watching and listening at home, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to remind you to uh, like, subscribe, share this video, uh, make sure to share it with all your friends, your family. Uh, we'd like to get this truth out to more people. And so we'll see you next time. God bless you.